Alrighty. Let's uh, continue our study. Let's somebody get our uh, basic text, First Timothy three fourteen and fifteen. Read that for us real quick. First, uh, Nick, First Timothy three fourteen and fifteen. We're looking at our uh, the community of believers, the structure, government of the church, uh, the nature of the church, how it relates to us, how we relate to it. And so, uh, First Timothy, if we could have that text. Okay, so how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church of the living God. How do, how do we conduct ourselves? How does the church function? And that's what we've been looking at, trying to come to grips with various issues that this raises. And so, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> last week we started on uh, uh, discipline. And uh, we concluded last week with uh, a great number of hands and... Uh, uh, it was getting pretty riotous in here. It was very enjoyable. And uh, so we left with none other than the inimitable Jeff Brown uh, posing a question. And uh, I started to answer that, and uh, he came up after the morning uh, shot and clarified his question. What his question was, in essence, was actually twofold. One was, The first was, uh, as we looked at these various scriptures, it appeared to him that uh, the church was the one that was supposed to be, uh, you know, making disciplinary decisions, not just the pastor, although he certainly didn't want any kind of involvement in that. He just could not uh, see how it was flowing through the pastor as such from the verses we looked at. And I think primarily that's because his mind was locked in on Matthew 18. We're going to look at that in just a minute. The other question was, it seemed to him, he couldn't see where we were to remove people. What he thought the scriptures pointed to was that we were simply to shun them uh, and uh, let it run its course. And so uh, I want to answer the the second question first, just so we can clarify these issues. We were looking at 1 Corinthians. So somebody get me 1 Corinthians 5, 2. Uh, Sam and uh, Daniel, get me uh, Revelations 2.14. And so, first of all, thinking logically, uh, it would be very, very strange to uh, have the entire church shunning someone in our midst. It it would be kind of unworkable. Um, We're just going to ignore you. You're here, but we're just going to ignore you. I don't see how that could even logistically happen. But... Uh, beyond logic, we do have the clear uh, statement of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 5, 2. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Might be taken away from among you. 1 Corinthians 5, 2 in the NIV says, uh, put out of your fellowship. The RSV says, uh, let him who has done this be removed from among you. First Corinthians, uh, Living Bible says, seeing to it that this man is removed from your membership. And so it's very, very clear from 1 Corinthians 5, 2, that he's to be bodily removed from your presence if you have to come to that kind of extreme uh, judgment and extreme discipline. We also see uh, in Revelations 2, verse 14. 
Because you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. I have this against you. The whole thing comes back to the question of leaven. Remember, we were talking about leaven last week, and we said that the two primary purposes of extreme church discipline is one, redemption, to bring a person to grips with their sin in such a dramatic way that they have to deal with it. And remember, we talked about last week that uh, back then there was no church across town to go to. When you were removed from the church, you realized, hey, you know what, I'm not a Christian anymore. And this brought extreme uh, fear to the wise. And the wise would say, you know what, I'm on my way to hell. This is, this is wise to be afraid of going to hell. So this would put great pressure on an individual to repent and to deal with the issues of their life. The second purpose was to remove leaven from the church so that uh, the unrighteousness would not spread, which it is wont to do in the church. And so here God speaks to, Revelation, uh, speaks to the church in Revelations 2, and he says, I have this against you that you have there, or literally in your possession. That's what the word means. You have in your possession those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. And so he's saying, I have a problem with your church. You have in your midst people that hold to false doctrine. And so it's very, very clear that the issue would not be satisfied if they simply said to them, uh, you just keep that to yourself. That would not satisfy God's uh, position with them. He would say, my problem is they're in your midst. My problem is you have them in your possession. They shouldn't be there. Okay? So you see that very clearly? What we're dealing with is the issue of leaven and the removal of leaven from the church. Okay. Then answering the first question that he raises, he, uh, Jeff raised, which was, uh, and I, I don't see him here. I'm, uh, he's in Ireland. Well, he, St. Patty's Day, and so he thought he'd just trip over to Ireland and, and, uh, dance around, uh, and come back. And so we'll see him again someday, I hope. And so, uh, <laughs> this is green, by the way. It's olive drab. And so, uh, so, he, I feel like I am properly representing him. I'm sorry that he's not here if I misrepresent him, but I, I do believe we, I, I understood what his question was after we talked. And so, uh, the issue of why does it flow through uh, headship? Why should a pastor be making these calls? Why doesn't the church uh, bring the decision of discipline and judgment? And so there's several reasons for this. First of all, if you brought it into a corporate setting, Can you imagine the insanity that would ensue? Because immediately you have uh, sides. We see this even now when the way we function uh, 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 with a pastoral correction, many times when that is brought to bear, immediately there is schism and problem in the church, generally coming from the family of the one corrected or friends of the one corrected. So can you imagine... If we brought someone in and said, well, this person has this problem, what do you think? What should we do? It would be, it would be insanity. It would immediately lead to uh, schisms, splits, divisions. There is no way, there is no way, folks, that a church could function that way. Period. Okay. Number two is the picture of the church, nowhere in the scriptures, is democratic. It is a flow through headship consistently. And so we looked at this. We looked at this. A couple weeks back, the nature of authority and leadership in the church. And uh, when it comes to making decisions, and especially something as extreme as discipline, then 
anointed leadership has to make the final call on that. Now, this is not a singular, this is not left to a, a person's whimsy. Obviously, we see in Matthew 18, two or more agreeing. We see that there is a general agreement that this is behavior that is unacceptable in the church of Jesus Christ. Nonetheless, in the ultimate, the very nature of the way the church is structured and the flow through headship seems to place, logically, the onus of this kind of decision on leadership's shoulders. Uh, remember we talked about pastors being shepherds. The purpose of a shepherd is to protect, to guard, and that's one of the purposes. And so in the process of guarding the sheep from, as Jeff put it, predators, obviously that's his responsibility as a pastor. He's got to take care of that issue. And so that, that falls to him by nature of him being a shepherd. Thirdly, uh, for every instance except Matthew 18, all of the uh, statements that are made about the congregation needing to judge and to shun someone, uh, every one of those statements comes from headship. They're all written by Paul or, uh, or, or uh, Jude. These statements that are made uh, are made from headship. Decisions are being made through headship and communicated from headship to the church. Uh, somebody get 1 Corinthians 5, 3 to 5. Let's look at the uh, most uh, uh, obvious case. Casey? This, this is the case that is the clearest functioning of this per- particular uh, issue of church discipline in the extreme. And, and keep in mind, we're talking about extreme now. We're going to look at this a little bit more in just a minute, but keep in mind, this is extreme. We talked about this last week. We don't just run around throwing people out of church. You know, we're trying to build a church. We're, tr- <laughs> we're trying to redeem people. We're trying to get people saved, you know. Uh, it's not, you know, uh, Pastor Mitchell was joking with me one day and we were going through a particular rift of immorality and people having to be removed for that. And uh, <laughs> he leans over to me and he says, you get them saved, I'll throw them out. You get them saved, I'll throw them out. <laughs> that isn't what we're about. But when you've got dynamics that you have to deal with, and unfortunately this is a, a, an immoral generation that has no moral reference points. And so, uh, you know, uh, it, there are times when you feel like, man, this is just ridiculous. But, uh, as I said, it is extreme. It's something you do in the extreme. And so keep that in mind. So we're looking at this instance of it in 1 Corinthians 5, an extreme moral issue in the church. This man is to be removed. So listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 3 to 5. Paul says, I have judged this. He's writing back into the Corinthian church and he's saying, you know, this, you can't allow this to continue in the church. You've got to remove this. We saw that in verse 2. You've got to remove this man from your fellowship. And then to shore up his position, he claims the right of rule. He claims his position of authority and he says, I have judged this, so you must judge it. I, as headship, have made this decision now. Because I have done this, and in so saying, what he's doing is he's putting an end to argument. He's putting an end to rebuttal. Well, but, 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 no buts. I've judged it. And he says, I have judged it now. You, with my spirit, 
He says, as if I was right there in the midst of you, have to take this action. It's unsavory. It's not something you want to do. Tough. It's something you must do. And he claims his position uh, and uses his clout to enforce the issue. Okay? So very clearly the church responded to that. We saw that last week that uh, the man was ultimately redeemed by their action and ultimately was restored because they found within themselves the capacity to deal with sin in their midst. If we don't judge ourselves, God will judge us. Okay, four. The fourth reason why we see it clearly flowing through headship is all of the letters in Revelations that deal with discipline issues are spoken to the angels of the church, which are literally the pastors. It's the word agalos or angelos. It uh, means a messenger, especially an angel, by implication, a pastor. And so you read through all of the commentators and all of the word uh, studies and uh, translators, and they all tell you that what he's writing to here in Revelation is the pastor. And so we saw in uh, Revelations 2, you, I have this problem. You have the doctrine of Balaam in your midst there. He's writing that to the pastor. Because you've, you've allowed this to happen. So through the pastor, it is then communicated to the church. The issues are spoken to the church. Nonetheless, God is holding the pastor's feet to the fire, and he is saying, if you don't deal with this, I'm going to pop your candlestick. You ain't going to be here anymore. Okay? And so very clearly, uh, God is moving through the uh, headship in the church. Finally, a very interesting study in this is uh, Alexander. Uh, somebody give me Acts 19.33. Uh, Acts 19.33, Dennis. And somebody give me First uh, Timothy 1.20, Mike. And this is a, a, a very interesting scenario. We don't have all the details, but we can, we can uh, sort of flesh out our understanding of the way this all flows uh, as we look at this. So Alexander uh, is coupled with Hymenaeus. Hymenaeus, we'll see, uh, was full of false doctrine. And so it stands to reason that so was Alexander. In 2 Timothy, it speaks again of Alexander and says he, he resisted our words. In other words, he stood against what Paul taught. And so there was a doctrinal issue here. And so uh, we see him in Acts 19.33. This is probably, we can't say of absolute assurance, this is the same Alexander, but it was probably the same one. So, Acts 19.33. So here's Alexander, he's a disciple there, and uh, <laughs> Paul slips out of town, so they grab Alexander. This is probably the beginning of his bitterness. <laughs> and so... Because they were after Paul, but they couldn't find Paul, so they grabbed Alexander and they dragged him into their midst. And uh, so he went through a, a brutal, traumatic experience. This may or may not be the same Alexander, but it seems to me that it's likely that it was and that at one time he was a disciple of good standing. Somewhere along the line, he embraced false doctrine, and this is where we see him in 1 Timothy 1.20. Uh, yeah, 1 Timothy 1.20. Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan. Does that ring any bells? 1 Corinthians 5. Dealing with the exact same verbiage. He is passing judgment, bringing discipline. And he is saying, Alexander and Hymenius, they're full of false doctrine, they're out of here. Okay? 
And so uh, uh, later on in 2 Timothy, he warns Timothy about Alexander, says he's done me much harm. And so clearly he was an unrepentant person who would not deal with the issues of righteousness. But Paul unilaterally makes that call. He judges Hymenaeus and Alexander in his letter. He didn't leave it to anybody else's discretion. He didn't bring it to the church and say, what do you think about Alexander Hymenaeus? He simply makes a call. And he says, you know what? These guys are filled with false doctrine. And so clearly, although he, he doesn't communicate in that verse to mark them and avoid them, all of the other scriptures that we looked at last week uh, bring that corporate position with these men. Uh, we're not going to have anything to do with these guys. They're messed up. And so we're not going to fellowship with them. We're not going to call them brothers. We're not going to have anything to do with them. Okay? Any question on that? Have we resolved that? And there were other questions that uh, weren't, weren't resolved last week. So, Casey? Extortioners, covetous, several. These various issues, so you're saying that even, and I think you briefly touched on it, that in the cases that say, you know, blatant uh, idolatry, false doctrine, that, we, that that is an example of someone we're not to deal with, or even if there's covetousness, someone who is uh, vehemently come against the, the plan of tithing and, and has said, I will not tithe, I'm not going to tithe, or, or in that situation, what, what, where does that bear out? Okay, good. Um, I think we're going to look at some of those issues in just a minute. He's asking about other issues, uh, uh, idolaters, uh, extortioners, uh, covetous, uh, a number of issues that later in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, I urge you not to company with them that call themselves brethren. He's not talking about people in the world that have these problems. He's talking about people in the church that have these problems. And so we're going to see uh, that perhaps there's some latitude in how to deal with this. And we're also going to see our personal interaction with these dynamics. We're going to look at that in just a minute. So um, hold the thought. And if it's not satisfactorily answered, uh, we'll come back to it. Your first issue is, uh, you know, totally valid. Uh, it seems that we don't have any problem with discipline. We don't have problem with, you know, getting fired for being, you know, uh, lousy on the job. We don't have problem with drug testing. We don't have any problem with, with corporate policy. That holds our feet to the fire. But when we come into the church, there's a problem with that. I read the other day that this was a record year for throwing homosexuals out of the military. And so, uh, and so the reason why, the reason why is because, you know, they keep insisting on coming out of the closet. Because right now there's a no tell, no, no tell, no go to hell. I don't know how it works. <laughs> At any rate, whatever it is. Uh, and so apparently they're getting more and more militant and aggressive, and so they're throwing them out by the droves. But, you know, the bottom line is, that's, I wouldn't want to be in a foxhole with Bruthie. I'd have a problem with that. Okay? And so, 
so, you know, <laughs> here we are, and, and it seems to work everywhere but the church. As soon as you get into the church, it says, whoa, you can't do that. And I think the reason for this primarily is people view the church as a volunteer organization. And they say, look, I volunteered to be here. You don't have any right to speak into my life. But we have studied this thoroughly. And we see that that isn't correct at all. That when you became a Christian, you didn't volunteer to become part of the church. You became a Christian, God put you in the church, whether you like it or not. Because how many of you know it would be a lot easier to be a Christian if you weren't in the church? You wouldn't have to deal with people. You wouldn't have to fight with people. You wouldn't have to, you know, you could just be crazy all on your own. Nobody could correct you. Right? So, But God said, no, this isn't a volunteer organization. You don't volunteer to come to church. If you don't come to church, you have no part in me. This is like this is just like Jesus saying to Peter, if I don't wash your feet, forget it. All bets are off. It's the same dynamic in the church, but I think that's the problem in America. We think that we are volunteers and hence privileged people. Very good. Very, very good. And so we, uh, we've, we're sticking primarily with New Testament. And I've done that deliberately because I'm trying to define the church. But most of the principles that we've looked at are very, very clearly pronounced in the Old Testament. And Peter mentions Achan and how Achan sinned, violated. God moved through Joshua to bring that correction and ultimately that judgment. And yet there was a corporate uh, involvement in that as well. So this is a principle that God has always honored. Okay, Suzanne. Yeah, okay, so that was Moses with uh, uh, Dothan and uh, uh, Korah. And so uh, uh, the, God judges them, swallows them up into the ground, says, there, now we've resolved the he- headship issue. Okay, we've, this puts an end to the question of, uh, you know, who do you think you are? And so they're all gone, but the very next day there's a group of people that aren't happy about this. And so God smites them with a plague. You guys are slow learners here. Okay? And so the whole issue of authority as we view it in the Bible is very, very difficult for the American mindset. We don't like this stuff, man. This is not the way we would do business. Which, for me, once again, puts the seal of God on it because God always does business the way we wouldn't. Amen? (laughs) Okay, Mike. Diversity is getting hold of God. Yeah. 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 Diversity is the buzzword today for the homosexual agenda. It has nothing to do with racial issues. Okay? It has nothing to do with racial issues. When you see the word diversity, your antenna needs to immediately go up and say, okay, that's we know what's behind that. 
Okay, Bill. Eleven. Yep. But we're also called, the church is called to be a standard of righteousness before an unsaved world. Yep. People outside the church know what goes on. Yeah. And I think knowing that there is someone who takes the scripture very seriously is a good thing. It's just yep. like putting Jesus on, bloody Jesus on the cross and praying for this point in your faith. This is the gospel. Yep. And I think if we hold that standard in the community, I think there's a value there in bringing conviction on the community and upholding that standard of righteousness. Yeah, very good. Very good. When we started this particular aspect of the church, the study, uh, I, I quoted several books that cited this issue, that the church has lost its moral high ground because it has stopped bringing discipline in Christians' lives. It no longer has the testimony of righteousness that it once had for this very reason. And so that's a very good point, is that there's an element of testimony here that is also critical to uh, uh, the actions that we take. Dennis. Yeah, well, what you have when society judges criminals is lynch mobs. That's what you have. You have uh, uh, vigilante justice. And so uh, that's exactly what would break loose in the church if we just left it to you. You know, the innocent people would die and the guilty would go unjudged. Okay, so I think we've resolved those particular questions. Uh, Is there a particular question that remains unanswered? Let's limit it to a question. So I want to cover the rest of this discipline material. Question, Mike. Does it go on? The uh, different different situations demand different actions. I can't tell you how long it goes on. I can't tell you how long uh, before the hammer falls. Uh, but generally speaking, in cases where there's clear violations, it doesn't go on very long. Not in, not in our churches, anyhow. As far as out there, we've already seen that out there, it's not happening anymore. This is very unique. 
this is a biblical position that has been largely overthrown in our generation. All right, <clears throat> I, want to, uh, I want to look at another aspect of this, this whole discipline issue, because we have been talking about the last recourse. This is, this is the final action taken by the church. We saw that in Matthew 18. So we looked about redemption and the way this whole thing flows. A brother offends. You try to restore him. He won't hear that. Then you bring another brother and you try to deal with it that way. It still doesn't work. Then you bring him to the church, the headship, and there's judgment there. And uh, if he still won't respond. So we see that there's a process involved in that. The process actually goes all the way back to the way we uh, deal with each other in righteousness and in issues of righteousness. Give me a definition real quick. Give me a working definition of discipline. The word discipline. Step out of the context of extreme judgment. Give me, the, give me a working definition for discipline, Eleanor. Okay, correction. Uh, Sandy. Okay, training, and you draw a distinction from training to discipline, but I don't think so. I think discipline is all about training. Okay, uh, uh, Owen, instruction. instruction. Okay, training, instruction. Uh, Dave, I, I tell my management team that either discipline comes from within, or if it doesn't, it has to come from without. Okay. Okay, discipline either comes from within or without, and it's not necessarily punishment. That's what I want you to see. We saw that at the beginning of this discussion. It's about redemption, not about punishment. Grace. Limits. Boundaries. Carol. Okay, externally a rebuke to bring face to face. Pete. Pardon? He buffeted himself. Okay, Chad. Molding or shaping. So the whole concept of discipline, as Dave says, comes from within or without, and it has to do with restraint, doesn't it? An Olympic contender disciplines his life. Paul buffeted himself using the Olympic uh, metaphor. Okay? It has to do with restraint. It has to do with tailoring our activities to produce what we want in the end. Uh, a musician disciplines himself, uh, or he, uh, or, or his teacher disciplines him and wraps his knuckles. Uh, there's lots of different ways discipline comes to us, but ultimately discipline is about restraining behavior and tailoring it to fit a desired end. So self-discipline is self-imposed restraint, isn't it? No, I'm not going to do that. That's self-discipline. External discipline is restraint imposed by others. Church discipline then actually begins to take place on levels way before it gets to leadership. Because the truth of the matter is that it should be taking place on a church-wide level as we interact with each other. We should have the ability to speak into each other's lives And say, you know what, man, that's funky. Which we've always done to a degree. Okay? And that is legitimate. And that really is your first tier of church discipline. And that, if heeded, can save us from all of the sadness and heartache 
of the extreme discipline that we've been looking at. Because if brethren can speak to each other and help each other come to grips with issues in their lives, then, uh, uh, you know, we can, we can nip it in the bud, so to speak. Right? Before it ever gets to something extreme. This is incredibly assaulting on our pride. To have a brother speak to us and say, you know, that's funky. You know, people will hear it. Pastor Mitchell goes, I don't want you doing that. <laughs> okay. But brother so-and-so says it and you go, who are you? That's a bad way of looking at things. I would much rather have my friend correct me than be thrown out of the church for heresy. Amen? So the truth of the matter is, discipline starts at an early level. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Somebody get me that. Uh, Lucas. Uh, Galatians 6.1. Sam. James 5.19 and 20. Don. Hebrews 10.24. Rod. Mike. Get me 1 Peter 5.5. Ephesians 5.21. Randy. Romans 15.14. Joel. That will get us where we need to go. Okay. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Now we exert you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. We, we read that one more time. We exhort you, brethren... Warn those that are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Uphold the weak. Be, patient with all. Be patient with all. Okay? Who's he speaking to there? Brethren. The church. He says you have a responsibility to warn the unruly. To warn them. You know what, man? You're heading down the wrong path with this. Bad idea. Okay. Galatians 6.1. Brethren, brethren, okay, you need to take seriously your responsibility to restore someone, or in other words, to uh, correct someone who is taken in a fault, done it in a uh, spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of meekness. Uh, You who are spiritual need to do this, okay? The responsibility lands on you. you. You can't just turn a blind eye if a brother's walking towards a ditch, You have got to warn. You have got to restore. You've got to speak into their life. James 5, 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone errs from the truth and one converts him or one turns him around, then you've saved that brother. You've you've fulfilled a profound obligation. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider one another to provoke or to goad one another to good works. Okay? First uh, Peter 5 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
All of you be submissive one to another with a spirit of humility. We don't like that. But that's what Peter admonishes us to. All of you be submissive one to another with a spirit of humility. Ephesians 5.21 Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Recognizing, you know what? God could easily use you to speak into my life and save me from disaster. I have a fear of God. I don't want to be stupid, I don't, but I have that potential. How many of you know we have unlimited potential for stupidity? You know, for accomplishment, we seem to have limits, but for stupidity, there are no limits. And so uh, we need each other because so many times we are blindsided. We go into something thinking we're, we're right on the money and we're miles off. And a brother goes, hey, I don't think that's a good idea. And all of a sudden, we're brought back to reality. And how many people do I know personally who could have been spared disaster if they only listened to their peers? Romans 15, 14. I'm confident that you, brethren, are filled with good spirit. You've got a good heart. You mean well by this. And therefore, you are able to admonish or literally to caution or reprove gently. That's what the word admonish means. That you are well qualified to caution and to reprove gently your brethren. Okay? And so, I acknowledge that there's nothing harder than to submit to one another. And to allow ourselves uh, to be subject to someone else's criticism. To maintain humility when someone's pointing a, f- uh, a finger at your failure or your flaw is extremely difficult. But it's what the scripture points to. And says this, this is a self-policing organization. That we have a responsibility to speak into each other's lives when we see each other going into error. Now, I understand that what I have just said. Is fraught with peril. Because some people like to do nothing more than meddle. Okay? Uh, I didn't think of it till just now, but I have read probably five or six scriptures that say, mind your own business. There is a balance here. Okay? You don't become the church corrector because Pastor Lamb said, correct one another. Oh, well, there you go. I can't wait. There are people in this congregation that I've been wanting to set straight for years and (laughs) I'm loose. The guideline in Galatians is for those who are spiritual, not carnal, not motivated by self and ego. See, here's the problem. Our egos are quirky. Our egos are strange things. And so the way many times we make ourselves feel better about ourselves is putting other people down. That's one of the one of the uh, most common ways. You know, that's that's why we mock each other because you know I'm not like you. <laughs> you know, that's how you feel better about yourself is at least I'm not like so and so. So here's a strange quirk in human nature. And uh, so the Bible says, you know, this isn't a license to just run around uh, and start fires all over the church. Let those who are spiritual deal with the brothers. And he goes on and says, do this gently. 
Do this in humility or meekness, which is restrained power. And he puts on this final clause, knowing that you yourself could fall into the same temptation. That you are no better than the person you are speaking to, and you're at the same risk they are. So what I have found many, many times when I'm speaking with a brother about sensitive issues, a lot of times it really helps to just come at it from my own experience and say, you know what, this is where I screwed up. Immediately that disarms. I'm not pointing the finger at you, I'm pointing the finger at me. This is where I screwed up. You know, I did something really harebrained. Yada, yada, yada. And all of a sudden that person goes, gee, I'm doing the same thing. And there's, it's not this confrontation, it's not this breach of relationship, it's dealing in gentleness and humility. Okay? Now I understand that this study, and, I, and I'm, I'm making this disclaimer right now, that I understand that what I have just said will not create the problem of rampant egos. That problem existed long before I opened my mouth. Okay? And so I refuse to accept responsibility for the insanity that may ensue. All I'm doing is putting forth a scriptural precedent and I'm telling you this, that if you take it upon yourself to become the church corrector, then someone else, maybe me, maybe Pastor Mitchell, will be forced to come to you and say, you know what? You're out of line. Your ego is out of control. I want you to shut up and stop talking to people. So, keep that in mind. Twister. I just had a question about, uh, I know in my own self, you know, I get flipping in my behaviors and I think, you know. Uh, the, the scripture says, you know, don't be uh, saying, uh, going to a brother or something, let's take the plank out of your own eye, you know. Mm-hmm. Very, very good. So, if I see this thing in myself, and I see another brother doing it or sister or whatever, should I keep my mouth shut? Or should I speak up? Well, I would certainly say that if you are convicted when you see your brother act in a way and you are convicted because you yourself are guilty of the same issue, then I would say that uh, you better deal with your own first. And then when you are in a position where you've corrected yourself, then you have the spiritual clout to speak into his life because there's more going on here than just words. It has to do with God getting involved through our words. And if you're blocking God's involvement by your own misbehavior, you're in no position to speak to anyone. Okay? Uh, Mr. Mazan, Dan. So, let that be a lesson to you. With what mercy you show, that's the mercy you'll receive. That's what the Bible says. Dave. You're working with people and not on them. 
So a, a, a wonderfully candid testimony of the corrector being corrected, which could easily happen. Okay, Steve. Yeah. And then that the scriptures then give that person the authority then to speak. And I'm saying this because I've experienced this myself where I went to another brother and said, I need help. And his words were simple, but his words had weight yeah. and, and have affected my life yeah. to this present day. Yeah. And have changed some things in me. Yeah. Okay, Galatians does put the onus on us. Go to them in spirit of meekness. But there's two things that I want to address here. Number one is he says, when I went and sought correction, it made great impact in my life. That's because your heart was open to the correction. You, you were open before you even got there. And you had confidence in this man. And so as he spoke into your life, you were there. You were ready, and it helped you greatly. So obviously that's preferable, is that first and foremost, we police ourselves. I haven't even talked about that. Is before you police everybody else, as Twister says, you better take the, you know, the moat out of your own eye. You better police yourself before you're even interested in policing others. The second thing I think is a very important point here. And that is, this doesn't mean you start walking around the church with a gift of suspicion. <laughs> you're watching, I'm watching you. I'm watching you. Watching you. Okay? This flows out of relationship. If I don't even know you, and you come across the church and say, you know what, God spoke to me, you're not tithing. I would proceed to hack you into little pieces with my tongue and leave you quivering on the floor. Because you're completely out of line. You have no relationship with me. You don't know me. You don't know my tithing. You don't know anything about me. You just are on some insane trip. This flows out of relationship. I don't look for problems, but in the course of my relationship with someone, they say something. They say, you know what? I'm thinking about marrying uh, um, uh, Lulu. Who's Lulu? Oh, she's a, you know, a dancer down at the bar. <laughs> you know, brother, I don't think that's a good idea. See, I have a relationship with you. And in the course of that relationship, you expose yourself. Because you can't help but expose yourself. We are who we are. So sooner or later, what you are comes out in the course of our relationship. That's how I all of a sudden am confronted with the need to bring discipline. I didn't go looking for this. You don't go looking for this. I haven't just given you a license to start meddling. You don't go looking for this, but in the course of relationship, invariably you're going to stumble across things that you're going to go, you know what, man, if I don't speak to this, I am, I am wrong. I am wrong. And, and for most of us, this is very, very difficult. It, it puts my stomach in knots. I hate confrontation. I hate having to bring correction. I'm a pastor. 
And I hate it. I'd rather do any part of my ministry than call somebody out and jack them over. I hate it. I get done and I walk away thinking, God, are you going to kill me now or later? It's a horrible feeling to have to deal with stuff like this. But sometimes in the course of relationship, you are obligated to do so. So it flows through relationship. A very good point, Steve. It's, it's not just we just go looking for someone to correct. Okay, Casey. Waiting on God. So timing is very critical in this. And you want to have the mind of God when you're speaking into someone's life. And sometimes, if you'll just wait, you'll come to realize that your analysis of the situation was wrong. If you'll just wait, you'll come and say, you know what, I've misinterpreted this completely. But some people just like to jump on their horse at the first whiff of smoke. Oh, there's somebody to get. You know, better to just wait and pray and get the release and then you go in the anointing of the Spirit. Uh, Harden, Joanne, Harden. Very good, very good. She says, you know, it's easy to have personal convictions and then want everybody to have your personal convictions. Better be sure that the convictions that you're bringing are God's convictions and that it really is an issue. There are a lot of things that people are working out that you don't have to speak to at all. If you just let them go, they'll work it out. We're talking about stuff that really needs correction. You know, just because your brother, you know, is parking in a handicapped spot... uh, you don't have to jump, you know, eat his lunch every every day. What are you doing, you know? Just, you know, give him some time. Let God convict him. It's always better when the conviction is formed by the God working on you than your brother's working on you. It's always more solid that way. Okay, I want to get through this because we don't want to leak into next week. So, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. Somebody get that for me real quick. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. Uh, Dennis, Titus 3.10. Casey, Sam, get me uh, Galatians 1, 8, and 9. And uh, let's have those three scriptures real quickly. I'm going to backtrack now to the issue of extreme discipline, the causes for this as spelled out in Scripture, specifically 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. Okay, so sexual immorality uh, demands in most situations that this person be removed. Okay? Now, there are 
dynamics that are involved, as I said, and we're going to look at that. Let me not get ahead of myself. So we see sexual immorality is a cause for removal. Titus 3.10. divisiveness. Reject him. If he won't hear you once or twice, then reject him. Galatians 1, 8 and 9. Okay, and so we see heresy. So these are three specific things that are called out. Do- false doctrine, uh, divisiveness, Heresy and Matthew 18. We're not going to read that again, but what the issue is there is rebellion against the church. In, in its final analysis, I won't listen to my brother, I won't listen to my brethren, and I won't listen to the headship of the church. At that point, the Bible says, treat him as a heathen and a tax collector. Tax collector, You're dealing with a rebel. You're dealing with someone who will not accept any authority of anyone to speak into your life. So those are four specific issues that are addressed and are spoken into uh, our lives as to legitimate issues for removing someone. There is, however, some latitude as to the nature of sin here that is being addressed in Matthew 18. It doesn't say specifically what the issue is. And I do believe we are in danger if we say those are the only issues that we can address. Howard Snyder in the book The Radical Wesley says, Some examples show the extent of discipline and the nature of the offense. He's talking about discipline in Wesley's early Methodist movement. In 1748, Wesley reduced the Bristol Society from 900 to 730. Personally, he threw out 170 people. While on other occasions he found no expulsions were necessary. In port cities, he often, port cities, because <laughs> we all know about port cities. In port cities, he had often had to exclude some for smuggling and found with time that this discipline bore fruit in reduced smuggling in the area. From one society, he expelled 64 persons, two for cursing, two for habitual Sabbath breaking, 17 for drunkenness, <laughs> That's a wild church. Two for selling liquor. <laughs> three for quarreling. One for wife beating. Three for habitual lying. Four for evil speaking. One for idleness. I just wouldn't get out of hammock. And 29 for lightness and carelessness. There's an interesting thought. And they call us a cult. So this is a man who took very seriously the way we live and the way we conduct ourselves in the church. And I don't believe he was necessary. You know, maybe he's extreme. I don't know. But the bottom line here is uh, there was an incredible grace on this man's ministry and an incredible revival flowed out of it. God moved in a mighty way. And so uh, the bottom line here is that uh, we cannot say that only this sin or that sin could lead to disfellowshipping. By the same terms, we cannot say that this demands uh, a certain action. Every case in extreme discipline has to be taken on a case-by-case basis and dealt with accordingly. Okay? So that's all we got time for. That's all we're going to deal with this issue. And we'll deal with something else next time. God bless you.